When you look at the data, it's just impossible to deny that there are these large disparities. Then we can talk about what policies might be appropriate to fix those disparities or to close those disparities, what might be driving those in the first place. But that's, I think, a much more scientific, precise way to come at this question than to only have recourse to different anecdotes in a way that does not help move us forward as much. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever, join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit and your host. When you think of an economist, there might be a stereotype or two that comes to mind. I don't typically traffic in stereotypes, but if I'm honest, there is a stereotype that can pop into mind if I am kind of going, you know, quick and fast, right? And it might involve some glasses. <laughs> it might involve a professor in a lecture hall drawing supply and demand curves on the chalkboard. I've really dated myself, frankly, by naming chalkboard as a reference, probably beyond repair, but you get the gist of what I'm saying. And while that may be the case, and that role has value, right? What we can overlook when we have such a narrow understanding of the role of an economist is that economists don't just work with theory. They, in many cases, play a crucial role in finding the data that leads us to real-life solutions. Economists can help us understand our nation, its current state, and importantly, how to move forward. My guest today, John Friedman, is doing just that. John is a professor of economics at Brown University and co-director at Opportunity Insights, a nonprofit dedicated to translating economic research into policy change. His studies focus on finding out what are the true barriers to economic opportunity in this country. Now, this is critically important, whether you're an economist, an organizer, a creative, an investor, a business leader, an entrepreneur, whatever your role may be, right? Because so much of what is fraught in this country right now is the gap between our aspirational rhetoric and the lived experience of people across different identity groups and communities, right? The opportunity to aspire to, you know, grow economically is such a core part of the American ethos. You know, American dream is even a term that some folks still use. And Folks like John Friedman help us understand how close or far we are from those dreams being our lived reality. In our conversation, John breaks down the data for us and explains how social mobility today is actually harder to come by than it was years ago. He also helps us understand how increasing opportunities isn't just about benefiting communities who've been pushed outside of access. It's actually the best way to guarantee a thriving economy and nation for all of us. I'm excited to talk with you, John, because the work that you do in your research really are, I think, a keystone in all of us who care about education and opportunity and mobility in this country. We need to understand the data that you and your team have codified. So I'm excited for this conversation. But before we get into it, I do want to just kind of get here, because if you're anything like me, John, you've come from a couple of different conversations about very different things. <laughs> And so it just takes a minute to get to this conversation. And so one way I like to do that 
is just by focusing a little bit on what has cracked us up lately. So I'd love to hear what has happened recently, John, that just kind of cracked you up. So I'm always fascinated by the stories of people who just, you can see it where they make one choice and another choice, and they're just kind of following a logic and just end up in a place that's just entirely ridiculous by the time they get to the end of it. So uh-huh. the most recent example of this, I've seen this <laughs> pop up a couple of times. There was an individual, like a local official in India, who was out on a lake, hmm. which was a reservoir. He was trying to take a selfie, dropped his phone in the lake. So he was trying to get his phone back. He first had a bunch of the like local police team go dive for the phone. They couldn't find the phone. <laughs> so then what he did, and here's where we get to the part that cracked me up. He had the local officials drain the entire 2 million gallons of water in the lake oh in order gosh. so he could get his phone back. <laughs> and of course, when they got the phone back, the phone didn't work because of it course. had been sitting at the bottom of a lake. <laughs> and... You know, he's now in, you know, I'm not an expert, some variety of trouble for yeah, for this yeah. ridiculous thing, but that's, <laughs> that's what's a, cracked me up lately. That is, there's a lot in that. It almost feels like you were sharing a parable. You know what I mean? Like the fact that that's an actual story. It's, it's just, you know, <laughs> obviously it was an incredibly strange thing to do, but you can just kind of see it where he's like, wow, like I got to get my phone back. And like, yeah. I guess if I can't find the phone, we got to get the water out of the lake and then we'll find the yeah. phone. Yeah. <laughs> That's hysterical. That is hysterical. Wow. I'm going to hold on to that story. I mean, there's there's so much to be learned from that, right? I just, it's, there's so much to say. Okay, my example I'll give you is um, actually uh, fairly recent, and it's one of the reasons I love, love, love living in D.C. So I was visiting a friend of mine, and this friend, I'm pretty sure, lives next to an unlicensed daycare center. I say that because every time I visit this friend, the most beautiful babies you've ever seen are being guided in and out of this place. So I'm pretty sure it's a daycare center. The most beautiful children ever are going in and out and being cared for. So one day I am walking in to uh, visit my friend who's next door to this childcare center, and this man is carrying this baby who's maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe seven months, something like that. I'm not great at guessing age. And just, I've never seen a child so beautiful. The most beautiful eyes had the laugh, was laughing and just had the most like engaging, heart-wrenching laugh and just a beautiful baby. And so I'm on the phone actually with my mother at the time, John, and I'm talking to my mom and I said, mom, I am looking at the most beautiful baby I think I've ever seen in my life. And the thing that cracked me up about this moment is that the man who was holding the baby, the baby's dad, I presume, said, excuse me, you're supposed to be telling your mother that you just saw the finest man you've ever seen in your life. And all of us just cracked up. The baby was laughing just because that's what babies do when they're happy, I guess. The man was laughing. My mother heard the whole thing and she was hollering and I was cracking up. And it was just this kind of sweet, funny, random moment of just like joy, right? It was just joy. It was a happy child, a happy dad. And, you know, yeah, it was really sweet. And things like that happen to me in D.C. a lot, where there's just these spontaneous moments of connection and humanity and delight. So that's something that cracked me up recently. Um, It was really fun. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that, John. Thank you. And so now next question. Have you ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? I have. You have? Okay, are you a fan? I like it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a fun way to learn exciting things about people. 
Okay. But all you right. have to go first this time. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll go first. I'll go first. So two truths and a lie from me. Okay. I um, helped to start a school in East Africa. I have designed an after-school program uh, with input from Tupac. And I've played cello with Yo-Yo Ma. I am going to say that the school in East Africa is the lie. Wow. Well, I am honored that you would think the other two are true. That actually is true. I'm part of an organization called Jitegame, and uh, collectively we worked with local leadership in Kenya to build a school and technology center. So that's actually true. Um, The one that's the lie is I am a cellist. I have gone to see Yo-Yo Ma perform many times, and it is a dream that I would one day be able to actually play cello with Yo-Yo Ma. So I have not played cello with Yo-Yo Ma. So you, you tricked me because I said that, that, like, that was the one that kind of, it was right there for the taking as the lie. But I, I, I don't know, maybe I, I, I like outthought myself here. That's now, how it works. That's how it works. <laughs> funny story is that Yo-Yo Ma actually lives up the street from where I grew up. And his son was in school for many years with my younger brother. Uh-huh. And so I've actually gone trick-or-treating with Yo-Yo Ma, among other random things. I've never played the cello or music with him, but he's, uh, he's a wonderful man. So, John, hook me up. I mean, <laughs> like I've got to, <laughs> I said before, before this life is done, I've got to be in the company of that incredible artist playing cello at some point. My goodness. Oh, that's like, you, you, you have trick or treated with Yo-Yo Ma. That's incredible. That's a, I love that. All right. So now your turn. Two truths and a lie. All right. I always go for the more morbid angle on this. So all right. It's all right. Three things. I have fallen off a 25-foot cliff. I have been struck by lightning. And I have been run over by a large laundry van. You went dark, John. You went dark. Let me see. I've seen you, so there's no evidence of any of these things in terms of, you know, there's no limp or, you know, no physical evidence. Gosh. That's right. It was all okay in the end. It was all okay. Whichever one of these things happened. That's why I I go with these. (laughs) I'm going to say that you were run over by a laundry van because running over, it's hard for things to be okay in the end if you were run over by a vehicle. So I'm going to guess that that's the lie. So that's true. I was on vacation when I was about 10. And I was walking, maybe 12, something like that. I was walking through a parking lot uh-huh. and I wasn't looking. The laundry guy wasn't looking. And I was actually like, I was like hit by this car, but then I went through the wheels. Oh my God. And so I like kind of bumped my head actually on something on the undercarriage of the car. Uh-huh. But um, I remember I was almost more embarrassed that this had happened. So I basically got up and like walked away and I like didn't want to deal with the laundry guy. Thinking about this now, like he must have been uh, having something else going through his mind. <laughs> oh yes, I, I was run over by his laundry truck. I've also fallen off a cliff. I was just kind of messing around in Arches National Park. And I, it was like 20, 25 feet. Whoa. I like woke up in the hospital later, but I was okay. I have not yeah. been struck by lightning though. Wow, John. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. And all was okay in the end. So no permanent results from this yeah you know i got a concussion from that i like sprained my ankle you know spent a couple days in the hospital but like big picture all is well it's all okay so 
those stories, John, are incredible. And, you know, it speaks to the power of resilience. <laughs> it speaks to good luck, right? There was some good fortune. The fact that you fell between the wheels versus... a tremendous amount of good fortune. Right? Now, fortune is something John has thought about a lot, and not just in his personal life. As an economist, he studies how people's fortunes, things they can't control or determine, like their race or the neighborhood they were born into, affect their opportunities in life. Now, notice I said opportunities, not capabilities or aspirations. I use data to understand and solve problems in the world. Mm -hmm. And when I think about that, it's really squarely within what I know many economists do mm-hmm. as a living, mm-hmm. what they do in their research. But I do think it's very different than the stereotypical idea yeah. of what economists do, which is a lot more based on theoretical assumptions, maybe much more focused on things like financial markets or interest rates. Mm-hmm. But it's really a large part of what economists do. And that, I think, connects with how I got into this a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a kid who, you know, I liked math. I was, I was pretty good at math, but I also liked thinking about the world. So I always loved history. Yep. And economics was a way to kind of pull those two things together. Now, the key thing that happened that really turned me on to what I've actually done as an economist Mm -hmm. is the data revolution. Hmm. You know, as computers got better, as these new big data sources became available, it opened up enormous new opportunities for research. Hmm. And so then the question really became, how do we want to use this opportunity of all the questions in the world that one could study, what seems to be most deeply important? Hmm. And what we hit on was thinking about how experiences during childhood shaped long-term outcomes. Uh-huh. You know, what was it exactly about your experience in school, in your neighborhood, in your family environment, whatever it is, mm-hmm. that shapes one's possibilities? Mm-hmm. And then when you start thinking about the data from that perspective it then becomes very clear that there are these huge disparities in the types of experiences that we all have that present themselves as inequalities of opportunity where children, based on the zip code where they grow up, based on their race, based on their socioeconomic status, Mm -hmm. seem to have very different possibilities in life. Mm. Nothing about those things is determinative in the sense that it's not like your destiny is set Okay. But it really makes a difference. Got it. And trying to understand just seems like such a deep, important feature of the American experience yeah. of, of any society mm-hmm. that we understand and work towards this ideal of equality of opportunity. And so that's how yeah. I really got set on the research path that I've been on for about the past 15 years. So you talk about exposure to lead and how it impacts 
achievement outcomes. You talk about exposure to combat and how it impacts needs for supports when veterans return home. You talk about bias and judicial decisions and how that impacts a whole host of experiences across the nation. There's a connecting of dots and a revealing and exposure of truth, frankly, that I would imagine economists being in this mix enables. So that's exciting to me. And, you know, I think that it does us a disservice if we continue to define the economic research as sort of this narrow, homogenous, solely intellectual or market-based endeavor. You know, it's really interesting to think about that, John. Yeah, I agree. And honestly, I think that economists need to do a better job communicating that this is what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I teach a course called Using Big Data to Solve Social and Economic Problems. That's a course primarily for first-year and sophomore students at Brown, Mm -hmm. where precisely the goal is to introduce them to these broader, more empirical wings of the discipline, Mm -hmm. which are very different from what they might think of as what they would study without having learned more. But I think it's really on us to communicate better, to help educate students better about what the possibilities are of learning more in economics. Mm -hmm. And at that point, if students want to do this or they want to do something else, of course, that's totally fine. I just want to avoid a situation where people choose to do something else. Mm -hmm. It hurts me inside when I talk (laughs) to a student and they say, well, you know, I was really interested in studying, you know, racial bias in the criminal justice system. And so, of course, I didn't become an economics major. Right. And I want to say, well, there's lots of ways to study that interesting question. You don't have to be an economics major, but right. you absolutely could have studied this question as an economics major. Mm. And so it's it's that sometimes I, I meet people like that. I, I want to make sure that no one makes that mistake, at least here. John's research focuses on understanding social mobility. I'm sure you've heard this term thrown around a lot, especially these days. I wanted John to help us understand what it actually means. So we mean that a child's opportunities or possibilities in life Mm -hmm. should not be circumscribed by the circumstances of their birth. Hmm. And we implement this in data by looking at the long-term trajectories of children born, you know, in every neighborhood across the country Mm. and seeing how do their demographics, their gender, their race, their socioeconomic status of their family, how does the neighborhood in which they live link to the outcomes that they experience later in life as an adult? How much are they earning? Are they incarcerated for Women, we can measure whether they end up having children as teenagers. We can measure for a subset, whether they go to uh, higher education. And systematic finding really across all of these Mm -hmm. is that there are really large differences in the distribution of outcomes Mm -hmm. between what look like very similar children, but just born in different circumstances. For example, studies show that children born to Black or Native American parents are more likely to be incarcerated than white children. Even when growing up on the same block in a family with the same income level and education and wealth as a white child, mm. you know, the disparities on, along racial lines are, are so large, the 
black child of a millionaire has a much higher rate of ending up in prison than kind of a white child growing up in a family earning forty dollars or $50,000 a year. And so it's, I think, statistics like that that really highlight, you know, that that's not pinpointing exactly what's going wrong, mm-hmm. but there's got to be something going wrong when you have disparities like that, which are not attaching to people who've lived their life and have done this or have done that, but this is something about the opportunities that children have. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I, that's what we mean by social mobility. We mean that your opportunities should not be linked in this type of way to yeah. circumstances of your birth that you really have no control over. Right. And, you know, we are ever increasingly living in uh, multiracial, you know, democracy. In 2026, this experiment of American democracy will be 250 years old. And, you know, as fraught and inconsistent and in some moments and times and spaces unjust as that history has been, there is this premise, this notion, this promise and potential of what some have called in the past the American dream. And I'm doing air quotes, right? And what the American dream is literally the opposite of what you just described. The American dream is the idea that no matter who you are, where you come from, what your state, you know, the condition into which you were born, that if you are willing to work hard, do your best, be fair, you know, have integrity, that you have the opportunity to build resource for yourself, for your loved ones to be safe, to have access to what you need to be healthy, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all of that. And, you know, we know, and certainly in the past three years, there's been a lot of attention on the inconsistencies and injustices and how broken that promise has been. And yet the promise does still remain in this country in a way that is unique across the planet. It is still true that even that aspiration is still a uniquely American aspiration. So I believe what you're saying, though, John, is that this country is further away than maybe, not than it's ever been, because we no longer have chattel, legalized chattel slavery. But outside of that, post-emancipation, are you saying that we are now further away from the notion of the American dream than we were, say, 30, 40 years ago? Like, let's talk about that. Where are we as it, as it relates to the American dream today versus, you know, recent history? So it really depends on how you define the type of mobility that you're after. Okay. So one, I think, very intuitive way to define mobility is what people call absolute mobility. Hmm. And so think about that as basically, what's the chance that a child will rise up out of poverty to have a much higher standard of living than their parents did when they were adults? Okay. So that's kind of totally internally referenced, right? There's nothing that has to do with the rest of society. It's just like, do you have the opportunity to grow up and make a better life for yourself? Right. And by that measure, we are further away. The data don't go back all the way to emancipation, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. going back uh, until the years right after World War II, what we've seen is that rates of this type of absolute upward mobility have fallen pretty sharply over the past half century, 70 years. So here's another stat that is both troubling and telling. 
1940, 90% of the children born in that year grew up to earn a higher standard of living than their parents. That number has fallen to 50% today. To me, that demonstrates why, for so many people, what some call the American dream feels like just that, a dream, perhaps even a broken promise, versus a reality or opportunity. And the reason that that's, of course, many factors that have been driving that, but one, I think, very important factor is the change over now the last roughly 40 years in the way in which the U.S. economy has grown. In the generation after World War II, the economy grew both quite quickly, but also in a very balanced way. If anything, we saw incomes and standard of living rising faster for those households and individuals at the bottom of the income distribution. Hmm, In the last 30 or 40 years, we've seen the opposite, where growth has primarily accrued to those individuals and households at the top of the income distribution. Okay. Growth for, let's say, the top 1% of individuals, you know, those individuals are two or three times higher income now than they were a generation ago, while those at the bottom and even middle of the income distribution have seen uh, quite slow growth under some measures there's actually been no growth at all, for instance, in the median wage. Hmm. And of course, that's going to make it a lot more difficult for people to rise up out of poverty in this way when there's not uh, broadly shared growth over the years. So why is it, I mean, that's really striking. I mean, and it it resonates, right? I, I Again, I'm no economist. I have not you know, formally studied what you're describing, yet it feels true. It just, you know, you see that there is a small percentage of people whose wealth is expanding exponentially and that there is a sense of persistent struggle and limited mobility for everyone else. And the ratios across those groups is is getting, the gaps are getting larger. So why is it so challenging to talk about and discuss these themes in ways that all Americans can understand. It, it, it feels like this very, these conversations are happening more and more, but they seem to be happening in sort of pockets across the country. And, and how do we bring these issues to bear in a way where they're more universally understood and therefore, you know, addressable in this country? So I agree with you. These are really difficult issues to discuss. Mm-hmm. And especially when they're discussed in a way that seems to put different groups of people into competition in a way that makes it seem like it's a zero-sum game. Right. So just to give you an example, right, if the continued economic growth of individuals in, you know, the Black community, right, if that has to come at the expense of economic opportunities for people in the white community, right? That's like a totally different thing. That's just going to frame the discussion mm-hmm. in an oppositional lens right. in a way that if you say, look, we're trying to provide opportunity for all people. And, mm-hmm. you know, the more children whose barriers we can break down and we can open up opportunities for mm. them to become the next great inventors that are going to, you know, power 
the growth of technology and the growth of society. Mm. Like, wouldn't it be great if we had four times as many inventors as we do today? Right. That's what would happen if women and minority children and children from low-income backgrounds mm-hmm. grew up to become inventors at the same rate as do children from high-income white families who are, who are boys. Right. I think that frames it much more in a rising tide that can lift all boats kind of mm-hmm. lens. Mm-hmm. And I think that just puts the conversation in a way that's much easier to have. I also think that this perspective that it's less ex-post inequality that's bad. It's less that we just have to tax the rich and give it to the poor, but more that we have to create opportunities for children to achieve whatever it is that they will be able to achieve without mm-hmm. placing barriers in their way. Right. I think that highlights a much more shared notion. And mm-hmm. as, you, as you mentioned, the fact that people share this notion doesn't mean that it is the case in reality. Mm-hmm. But I think it's easier to work towards that. You get much less pushback when you say, we want to create equal opportunity for all children. Mm-hmm. And if you say, I think income inequality is too high, let's just go, you know, tack on a wealth tax to just take a bunch of money away from people. Right. Maybe we should do that. Maybe that's a helpful policy, but that's, mm-hmm. that's a different thing than trying right. to provide ex-ante opportunity. Now, John's right. Language matters. There's power in speaking about how we can all benefit from equal opportunities instead of seeing social mobility as a zero-sum game. In fact, talking about mobility as a zero-sum game has gotten us into a lot of the trouble that we're navigating today. And data can work as the foundation we use to begin having these conversations in an authentic, powerful, and inclusive way. I do think it's helpful to provide a shared language, a more factual basis, if you were, for Mm -hmm. discussing these things. Yeah, yeah. If we're talking about some very sensitive issue like racial bias in America. Mm-hmm. You know, you can tell me about your experiences and I can tell you about my experiences and about, you know, some friend told me about this experience. Yeah. And, you know, not to diminish any of those experiences, but it just can be very difficult to kind of get people on the same page and create a shared basis of understanding. Whereas if we, in contrast, look at data from what some economists have done recently, where they send out resumes by the thousands to different jobs, you know, hundreds of different companies across the US. And the resumes are the same, except for whether the name on the resume is, you know, Emily Cox or whether it's Lakeisha Cox. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Lakeisha is getting invited to come interview or getting reached out from the employer at rates that are considerably lower. John is referring to a study that showed that applicants with white-sounding names were 50% more likely to get a job interview than those with black-sounding names. Now listen, it can be a say-more episode in and of itself to talk about what do we actually even mean when we use terms like white-sounding names versus black-sounding. But that's the rub, and that's part of why John Friedman's work is so important. Because we don't have shared language to talk about the constructs of what we mean by white-sounding, whiteness, black-sounding, blackness. We kind of tiptoe around the edges of the thing, but in the meantime, while we're afraid to have a conversation or make something discussable, economic and social mobility are hindered based on these belief systems 
that presume that some names sound white and therefore have more uh, sort of readiness for employment, and some names sound black and therefore have less readiness for employment. John's work is important because we've got to get over being uncomfortable naming and saying a thing so that we can actually address an imbalance in this society. So that's the study he's referring to. Again, white-sounding names were valued in terms of opportunity at a 50% higher rate than black-sounding names. We can talk about different ways to interpret that, but like that's just a statistical fact at this point. Right. And I think right. that provides a way to make a discussion potentially more limited. Yeah. Because you can only talk about what you can measure in the data. Mm -hmm. But I do think it provides a helpful place to start. Mm -hmm. You know, coming back to the statistics that we talked about a little bit earlier, looking at the outcomes of children from different backgrounds, we don't have to start with this being all about racial bias or about unfairness. Let's just look at some data. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. you look at the data, it's just impossible to deny that there are these large disparities. Right. Then we can talk about what policies might be appropriate to fix those disparities or to close those disparities. What might be driving those in the first place? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting, John, right? Because we're talking about methodology and tactics to enable systems change, right? That's really what we're talking about and to address disparities. And the thing is, I'm a big believer that you need a range of methods and a range of tactics. The idea that there's sort of one set of approaches that's going to get us where we need to be. I don't think that's it. I think that we actually do need to have values aligned, but methodolo methodolo methodologically different approaches. Um, try saying that three times fast. And the thing for me is, and you and I have talked about this before, John, that when there has been such limited attention to the systematic underinvestment in specific communities and Black communities, Indigenous, Latinx, rural communities, there's been systematic underinvestment in these communities. There's been systematic mistreatment and marginalization of these communities. And so you have human beings who have a collective experience of pain. You know, there's grief, there's rage, and there is an amplified, accelerated expectation for justice and opportunity, right? And that that makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. What happens, though, I think it's the shadow side of having such a racialized economy in this country, <laughs> you know, and um, there's other economists who I know who talk about how racial identities have, in many ways, they have sort of currency. They have monetary value. It plays out in terms of how much you can earn. You talked about Lakeisha Cox versus, you know, Susan, right? And there's a way that there's so much accumulated anger and distrust and skepticism based on the experience that got us to the data that you have codified so clearly. It just makes me wonder how we can make space for that there are going to be a range of approaches and they don't have to diminish the importance of each other. So being more specific, there are some folks who would hear what you just said and would say, well, that's kind of like going from Black Lives Matter to All Lives Matter. Like that is a way of, by talking about everyone diminishing the experience and significance of that one group that has been pushed outside for so long in so many ways. And I know that's not what you're saying or suggesting. You're talking about an approach that enables, frankly, more engagement, right? I think, though, that in this country right now, we've been so trained to choose a side, if you will, 
that it has hindered our ability to make good on the potential of this country, which is that we live in a multiracial democracy. (laughs) And so we have got to find ways to create systems that enable all of us to get education should we choose, to have the employment that we desire, you know, to have health and safety, to be, you know, free from being targeted for incarceration. Like this country has so many different people. All of us need to have a shot. And I think a lot about um, Heather McGee's work. Do you know um, some of us and the work of Heather McGee? I do. So if you haven't heard of Heather McGee, allow me to tell you about her. I'm a huge fan. She wrote a book called The Some of Us and also has a podcast that's based on The Some of Us and stories that really show how it's in all of our interests, no matter who we are, what we look like, where we live and who we love, to build a society that makes space for all of us to have opportunity. It's not about helping one or two groups that have been on the fringes. It's about making sure that we have structures that make room for everyone to thrive and that it's in our collective interest as a nation to build those kinds of systems and infrastructure. I wonder if, you know, you have, and I don't mean to put you on the spot in talking about a particular uh, voice, but I do think that Heather talks about that we as a nation, regardless of our racial identity, regardless of our economic background, that unless you are a member of the uber wealthy, we all suffer when we have systems that push so many of us outside of opportunity. So the fact that so many Black and Native American communities are pushed outside of economic opportunity based on the data that you've compiled, that that is not just a problem for Black and Native American people, that that is actually a problem for all of us because it means that there's a ceiling on opportunity for all of us. Can you talk about that? Like, is that your perspective as well? Like, why is this relevant for me if I am a white, middle-class male doing fine not doing as well as I'd like. My kids seem to be struggling more than I'd like them to. But why do I care about the statistics that you are walking us through that show disproportionate negative outcomes for Black and Native American communities? I mean, I think that there are two arguments that one can make about why this is so important from a social perspective, not just from the individual or community-based perspectives of those particularly marginalized groups. Right. One is, I think, more the economic argument mm-hmm. that this really is a rising tide that lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. And including people more broadly helps grow the economy faster. This is not that there's some fixed number of jobs. Right. And for every job that a person who's not me gets, that's like one less job for me. Yeah. Right. That holds things in this very static sense that I think the data suggests that's not the right way to think about economies. Yeah. But then I also think that there's a broader argument. It starts with more of just a moral argument about the type of society that we want to live in, about those shared ideals that we all have Mm -hmm. for this country. But it quickly moves Beyond that, I think, because when people feel like they or their children just don't have a shot, and whether that's because somebody's growing up in a marginalized Black or Native community, whether it's because 
they're growing up in an abandoned manufacturing town Mm -hmm. or in a coal town in Appalachia, whatever it is. Right, right. That drives social unrest in a way that I think feeds very quickly into broader political unrest. And Mm -hmm. I think, honestly, if you look at a lot of the very deep divisions in our society today, not all of it, but a lot of it comes back to this problem that the growth that we've had in recent years has left too many people behind. Mm -hmm. And those people feel angry about that. They don't trust the system. Mm -hmm. And that leads to a push to make the system better, but a tremendous increase in the kind of nastiness of of interaction. It's not, I I think that's very unhealthy for society. And that, that too kind of feeds back in on you know, what types of reforms, what types of of growth are possible. While John's research shows us that America is moving further away from being a land of opportunity for all of us, it also points us to real solutions and possibilities. We might have a fighting chance at advancing a thriving economy and democracy if we first understand the imbalances and injustices that are at play today. So to learn more about John's findings, we decided to open it up to all of you with our community questions. If you'd like to become part of future Say More episodes, follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or the platform formerly known as Twitter. I still can't quite bring myself to call it X. I can't promise you (laughs) that I ever will. So just bear with me as I process this change. There you'll get to be in conversation with upcoming Say More guests. So John, I want to uh, share a couple questions that have come from the Seymour community that connect to the dialogue we've been having. One is, as a parent or guardian of a young person, you know, living in this country that you're helping us understand through your research, what can a parent or guardian personally do to help increase the likelihood of opportunity for the young person they're caring for? How can we help the children in our lives succeed and navigate everything you're helping us understand? So the data suggests that the environment in which a child grows up has enormous effects on their long-term outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and just to be very clear, it's not only that we see children growing up in different environments and those children have different outcomes, right? That's just a statement about differences in the population. Okay. Moving someone from a neighborhood that is less supportive of mobility to a neighborhood that is more supportive of mobility in a essentially random way has a large positive effect on that child's possibilities. Increasing the quality of education, whether that's by going to a better school or having better teachers or lots of different ways we know how to do that, Mm -hmm. that has a big effect. There's great new work on how the social environment in which children exist and the extent to which they are exposed as children to individuals that have either the aspirations as other children or Mm -hmm. live the example as adults. Mm -hmm. That can be incredibly important. So just to give you an example there, if you want to ask, where is it in America that girls are most likely to grow up to become inventors? It's the places where there are in the most number 
of female adult inventors. It's the places where that example exists mm-hmm. to tell the child, yes, that's something that I can, that I can do. Mm-hmm. And similarly, if you think about who children are interacting with among their peers, you know, think about a child who's coming from a family background where maybe there's not a history of college attendance. If that child is in a group of friends where all of those friends not only intend to go to college, but might not even have ever asked the question of whether they would go to college just because it was so assumed for them in their background, then that first child is going to start to think a lot about college as well. Mm -hmm. If that same child is in an environment where all of their friends are not thinking about that, then they're not going to have that type of aspiration as well. And so I would point in all of these aspects of children's environments, their social surroundings, their educational surroundings, all of these things are much more powerful, I think, than we give them credit for. And so that's what I think about as a parent. I think about where is my child going to school? I think about, you know, who is my child with in terms of their peers, in terms of the adult, maybe not formal role models, but, you know, who are they exposed to to give them a sense of what's possible for them in their life? Yeah. I guess the question I'll ask you as a close is, with all of the data you have gathered and with all that you now can see more clearly about where we are as a country, are you optimistic? Are you worried? What is your sort of perspective about the future of this country based on what you now know and understand more clearly? I am optimistic about our ability to continue to understand the roots of disparities that we observe in the world and to think about ways to close them. I think that the disparities are enormous and they run deep in a way that we just have to be honest, are not, we're not going to close these in, you know, in my lifetime. Mm. But the fact that we can't get rid of them doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to get rid of as much of them as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm less optimistic about our ability to implement the type of large-scale changes mm. that we may find or need to be required. Mm. And so I think, I guess I'm both optimistic and pessimistic yeah. about different aspects of this problem at the same time. Yeah, makes a lot of sense, John. I, it resonates, it resonates. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I mean, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for your dedication to the research, for your rigor, for making time to talk to me. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to continuing, you know, our conversations and staying connected to each other. Well, I appreciate the invitation to come speak with you. It's been an enormous pleasure. I look forward to continuing our conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Say More with Tulane Montgomery so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org. 
Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Thank you.